Uh, if you've been with us, you know that Luke has a lot to say about the uh, predictions to do with the birth of Jesus and not only Jesus, but his relative, who we're looking at today. Uh, we touched last week on issues of Mary and how Mary is blessed and what that means and how we today ought to relate to Mary. And uh, if you had, had the opportunity to either be with us or look online, you'll know that one of the things that I did was uh, offer hopefully a careful critique of uh, what much of Roman Catholicism has had to say about Mary. Well, today I want to offer more critique, um, not of Roman Catholics, but of evangelicals. Uh, I, I want to critique us. I want to critique our piety when it comes to thinking about God's faithfulness. Uh, I think it's a term that we use and, and often use inappropriately. I'll give you some examples of this. So, uh, maybe you're heading into town, it's particularly busy, you pray that God might give you a car park and guess what, right outside the shop that you've got to go to, someone pulls out, you pull in and you say to people, wasn't God faithful? And I want to say no, that's got nothing to do with the faithfulness of God. What does it have to do with? Well, we'll get to that. Or it might be that uh, as a student, um, if you are one now, or perhaps you have been one, you just didn't do much work. And term has got to the end and there are the exams that you're facing and you pray to God, please, can I, can I pass these exams? Or if you're feeling really generous, I wouldn't mind a distinction. And guess what? You get a distinction. And isn't God faithful? No, no, he's merciful, he's generous, he's kind. But maybe if you failed, would that mean God was faithful? It might be teaching you a lesson, but again, I don't think it necessarily has anything to do with God's faithfulness. Or what about rain on a wedding day? I mean, there's the bride and the family and the groom and his family, and they're praying for a beautiful, clear day because the reception is going to be outside. And it buckets down. Is God unfaithful? Well, you see, at the same time, the farmer down the road was praying for rain. Was God faithful? No, it's not got to do with God's faithfulness or unfaithfulness. God knows the rain that was needed has to do with God's providence, but not his faithfulness. So how do we understand the faithfulness of God? This passage, I think, gives us some clear examples and quite simply, God's faithfulness has to do with God being faithful, trustworthy, keeping his promises. So if God has made a promise and he keeps that promise, he's faithful, he's trustworthy. If God hasn't made a promise and something happens, then how do you measure whether he's being faithful or unfaithful? Yes. God is always faithful. The scriptures tell us that. But when it comes to reading the signs, when it comes to weighing up the circumstances, when it comes to what I see often amongst us, that is our crowd of Christians, where we speak of good things being the faithfulness of God, by implication does that mean that bad things are the unfaithfulness of God? You see the problem? Well, let's have a look at this passage then because we have some wonderful examples of God's faithfulness. First of all, his faithfulness 
to two old people, an old married couple, to Elizabeth and to John. Um, You see it picked up there in the opening verses. Uh, When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbours and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy and they shared her joy. See, here is an example of God keeping his promise, this time to an ordinary couple. Uh, It's very unlikely, the circumstances, completely unlikely in fact, because we were told earlier in the chapter that they were old and beyond childbearing age. And that led John to kind of critique the promise of the angel and how could this possibly be? And then he's been mute since that time. Uh, Elizabeth, well, I don't think it would have been any easier for her to accept these things. But God had made a very specific promise. And verse 57 gives us a very specific answer to God's promise. It's happened. God promised. He brought it about. It's God's work. Therefore, God is faithful. He's been faithful to this couple in their circumstances. It's very specific here. We could simply gloss over the fact that she gives birth to a son. It tells us that information. He wasn't adopted and she didn't give birth to a beautiful little girl. No, she was promised a son that would be born to her even in her old age. And God has kept that promise. Secondly, the name is important. Because the angel back in the earlier in the chapter said that he will be called John. And of course, Zechariah has been mute because of his uh, failure to accept that God would or could do this. And uh, the situation has arisen where neighbours and relatives have heard of the birth and they come together. And then verse 59, on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child And they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. So it seems that other relatives had a bit of input into the name. I mean, your name's Zechariah, then surely this guy should be Zechariah, or maybe just call him little Zach. Uh, There must be a name in your family that we can give to this child. But no, um, Elizabeth says that he's to be called John. And then they query again that there's nobody among your relatives who has that name. And then they made signs to his father. The fact that they made signs to his father rather than just speaking to him may indicate that he was deaf as well as being dumb for this period. I don't know for sure. But then John, uh, sorry, Zechariah asked for a writing tablet and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Uh, A little bit different to what Elizabeth just said. Elizabeth says, no, he is to be called John. Zechariah says, no, he is John. He, I think, is declaring the fact that for some time now he has accepted the promises of God. This is the baby. This is the one who's been growing. This is John, who's been filled with the spirit, who's grown inside Elizabeth's womb, who has now been born. And the child who is circumcised on the eighth day is John. Well, immediately, verse 64, Zechariah's mouth was opened and his tongue set free and he began to speak, praising God. So here you've got another very specific example of God's faithfulness. The angel had said that uh, Elizabeth would give birth to a child and his name would be John. And just as the angel said here, God keeps his promise. 
and the child is born and his name is John. That is God being faithful. Not just bringing about favourable circumstances, but keeping his promise. Third thing that we notice here, I think, and this is important in the scheme of Luke's gospel, is that the circumstances where these things take place are kind of public and accountable. They're, they're verifiable. You can check them out. Um, you notice that this happens not in a secret corner, but in public and the community observe what's going on. So back in verse 58, the neighbours and relatives hear that the Lord has shown great mercy. Verse 59, people come to circumcise the child. But then further, down in verse 65, all the neighbours were filled with awe. And throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. You see, here are public, verifiable events. Luke's writing this book to Theophilus. Uh, he wants Theophilus to be certain about these events. And he makes a point of demonstrating that the birth of John takes place in a community. And people in the community are so amazed at what they've seen take place that they talk about it in the hill country of Judea. I think there's an implication here. That is, Theophilus, if you want to check this out, just go up to the hill country in Judea. I reckon there's a pretty good chance that you'll find some relatives still there. There'll be people who talk about this, and we don't know how long it is afterwards, but I'd imagine that at least the older people were part of the gossip that took place after Elizabeth gave birth to this child. And by the way, do you remember Zechariah, the priest? He was struck dumb, and then he spoke, and you wouldn't believe it. They actually chose to call him this name, John. Who would have thought? You see, there's, there's gossip going on. There's chatter out there. And this is in the days before social media. There's no tweet. There's no Facebook post. Um, but the community is abuzz with what has taken place. So, Theophilus, if you want to be sure, you could check this out. Now, we can't, can we? But, but the point of history is what Luke is doing is he's investigating... He's been communicating with and listening to eyewitnesses and he's putting it down in orderly fashion so that Theophilus will be sure about these things. And the time for testing was then. If Theophilus wanted to investigate this, and we don't know, he may have. He might then have written a letter subsequently saying, all those things that you said, Luke, absolutely no grounds for any of them. I checked it all out. But you don't find opposition like this. And you find little details all the way through this gospel that seem to testify to the historical, geographical reality of what's being spoken about. But there's bigger things as well. Um, Zechariah goes on to speak. Verse 67, his father, uh, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied... So what we're going to hear now, it's not just Zechariah's musings over a few months of being unable to speak. Uh, this isn't just his best idea. 
This is the voice of God through Zechariah. So what we've got here is a, a divine commentary on what the birth of John the Baptist is all about. They're really helpful. And again, that's another aspect of the certainty, isn't it? Because when Luke writes to Theophilus in the first couple of verses, he says, I want you to know about the things that have been fulfilled amongst us. There's a background, there's a context, there's an Old Testament and God made promises way back then and we're waiting for them to be fulfilled. We're waiting to see whether God is faithful to his historical promises. Will he keep those promises? Can he be trusted? Well, Zechariah sings or speaks, we don't know exactly. My Bible had a little heading song of Zechariah. He, he may have put this to music. We don't know. But look at what he says. Verse 68. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. See, see, the faithfulness of God runs far deeper. It takes us back to the promises that God made to David. Promises that David's descendant would be a king who would rule on his throne forever and ever. And the picture here of the horn is a symbol associated with the king. It's a, it's a picture of power here, the king who rules. And what we're being told is that God is keeping the promises that were made through the holy prophets of long ago that related to the raising up of a king in the line of David. And as this Davidic king was raised up, he was raised for a purpose that is to be the saviour of people. So what's going on with John the Baptist? Fulfilment of God's promises to David kind of stuff. We don't have the full picture yet, but it's that big. We're not just talking about fulfilling the birth of a baby promised to a couple, as extraordinary as that was, but we're talking about the fulfilment of promises made to David that would bless the entire world as the Saviour came from the line of David. But it's not just David. As, as we read on here um, from verse 72, to show mercy to our ancestors or fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before all our days. It's not just the promises that God made to David. It's, it takes us way, way back before David to Abraham. So we've got promises to David and promises to Abraham. Does that remind you of anything? Those of you who have been at Salt through the last year, does it remind you of anything? Non-rhetorical? Promises to David, promises to Abraham? You're just shy or quick to forget. Matthew chapter 1, where it talks about the promises that were made to Abraham, to David, at the exile, and then the Son of God. You see, Luke's gospel, it, it's different, but it's making exactly the same point as Matthew's gospel. 
that the big covenant promises of God to Abraham and to David are being fulfilled. So God is faithful on a huge scale. And God's faithfulness is seen over generation and generation and generation. And they were looking forward to know whether God would keep his promise and Zechariah is praising God because that's what's going on. See, God is coming to bring rescue. He's coming to bring redemption. He's coming to bring salvation. He's coming to bring about uh, a whole new people that will serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness forever and ever. That's the promise that he made back to Abraham, to David, to Moses. And there's more. It's like Zechariah then looks at the baby. At, at, no, he's not little Zach, is he? He's, he's John. Not Tim, he's John. And he says to him, and you, my child, you will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare the way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and on the shadow of death and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. See, there is the question, how does John fit in? We know that he's not the saviour, that's the other baby that we'll hear about next week. But, but where is he placed? What's, what is it that makes John important? And, and why was he filled with the Spirit? And what's his special role? And that's the question that they're asking, isn't it? What is this child going to be? We see in verse 56. For they know that the Lord's hand was with him. Well, again, we need to go back in our Bibles for we're told here that this one, verse 76, will go before the Lord to prepare the way for him. John will grow up. Verse 80, the child grew and became strong in spirit and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. So we're not going to hear more about him until he's an adult. And what is his role? What's he going to be? What's God's purpose for him? To prepare the way for the Lord. Again, it fulfills promises that God had made. We don't have to go back as far this time to the last book of the Old Testament uh, to look at the book of Malachi. Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 says this, See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? And so it goes on to speak about his refining judgment. You see, before God turns up to bring judgment and salvation, a messenger will come who will prepare the way. What do we know about this messenger? Well, if we read on to Malachi chapter 4 and verses 5 and 6, the last two verses of the Old Testament, see, I will send the prophet Elijah to you. Before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes, he will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. See, what we're being told here is that this messenger who will come before the Lord comes is the prophet Elijah. 
Well, a spoiler alert, if we read on in the Gospels, we discover that it's not Elijah come back from the dead. It's actually one who's in, in the circumstances, in the mould of Elijah. It's one who is also out in the desert, who's clothed in camel's hair, who eats locusts and wild honey. Here is the one who brings a message from the wilderness. The Elijah to come is John the baptizer. But the big deal is not simply that he baptizes, but that he prepares the way for the Lord. And so the question that, that this raises is, if John's the forerunner for the coming of the Lord, um, what does that mean for the one coming after him? Who is this one? Well, the links have been established for us, haven't they? Between Elizabeth and Mary, the angel coming to both. Here is John there is Jesus. And John comes first and then Jesus comes after him. And we'll see that that's worked out in their adulthood. That John the Baptist will appear in the wilderness and he'll be preaching to people that they need to turn back for the forgiveness of their sins. And then Jesus will come preaching the good news of the kingdom, hot on his tails. It's interesting in the last verses of the book of Malachi, um, in speaking of the one who will come after the messenger, it, it says this in verse 2 of chapter 4. I'll read from verse 1. Surely the day is coming, it will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. So the, the, the Lord coming, it's a powerful picture of judgment. But, but the next verse, listen to this contrast. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. The sun of righteousness. What do we read of Jesus here in this promise that is made concerning John the Baptist? And you, my child, will be called prophet of the Most High for you will prepare you will go on before the Lord to prepare a way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God by the rising sun will come from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. See, the people imagined that the day of the Lord will be a day of fear and judgment. And they were right. But for those who fear God, those who turn back to God, those who seek forgiveness, that day will come with the healing of the rising sun, with the tenderness and the warmth of a saving God. This will come through the forgiveness of their sins. You see, this Saviour, the Lord who is to come, will come to bring about what has never yet been made possible. And that is for people to be restored from the inside out for forgiveness of their sins. Well, what do we make of this, friends? I want to draw four implications for us. Um, the, the first is, let's just be a bit clearer and more accurate in talking about the faithfulness of God. When we speak of the faithfulness of God, we don't simply mean the providence of God, that he provides all things that we need. 
though that is his faithfulness, for he said that he would do that. He keeps his promise. We don't simply mean that this is the mercy of God, because God is merciful to those whom he chooses to show mercy. Nor is it simply the goodness of God, and it's especially not the result of us getting what we want. That is not the proof that God is faithful. The proof that God is faithful is that he has kept every promise that he's ever made, specifically and finally in Jesus. He is a faithful God. Secondly, Luke is writing this to Theophilus that he might know for certain the things that he's been taught. And as we work our way through Luke's gospel, my prayer is that we will all grow in certainty about what God has done through Jesus. That we'll, we'll gain confidence in the gospel that we believe in. That we will have more clarity about our hope in eternity through the forgiveness of our sins. That we'll know that our trust in God has its roots in history and geography that it's not just a philosophical idea, that we'll be confident that even the sharpest minds in critiquing the Christian faith will not be able to destroy what God has done. That'll make us bold. That will build courage. That will help us to stand up for the one who we believe in. And so as Luke highlights that there are eyewitnesses involved, that he's being reliable with the evidence, that um, he's drawing on public information. Um, and as he's making these things clear, as he's recording the words of the angel, the words of um, Mary, the words of Zechariah, as he's sharing with us what the Holy Spirit has enabled and what God has given to Zechariah that he will hand on to us. As all these things are happening, we can have confidence that God has so worked in human history to bring about the answer to every promise that he's made that we can trust him. Thirdly, faithfulness, certainty. We are also, I take it, when we look at this, if we understand what this is speaking about, we should be filled with awe. Um, we're not just assessing history when it comes to Christianity. I mean, you, you can assess history, can't you? You can, you can do the research, you can go to the libraries, you can search on the internet, you can try and work out if, if Neil Armstrong actually did walk on the moon or whether it was all staged in the deserts of Nevada or whatever. You can kind of work that one out, but who cares at the end of the day? I mean, you can get into huge internet fights over whether COVID was started in a wet market or in a laboratory in Wuhan. Um, and you can research that because there's public information that's out there. And there's also a whole heap of hidden information, which if you could get to, you'd be able to. But it doesn't really change lives. This changes lives. Th this history that we're talking about here is God's promise to rescue, to redeem, to save, to forgive, 
that we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness. This is a promise that has to do with God creating us and recreating us to be the people that he's made us to be. This is about our identity. This is about what we live for. This is about what gives us voice. This is about true fulfilment. This is what will provide satisfaction. This is where you'll find real security. This is big stuff. And God has been faithful to these promises. So let's realise what we're engaged with. God, the creator of this universe, becoming a baby to bring about the salvation of all who will turn to him. It sounds a little kind of weird. But as you look into this, there is nothing bigger and there is nothing better. So or, but also notice that once these things happen and once Zechariah has his voice back, it leads to praise. And if we are sure of these things and we know that God has kept his promise um, and, and this fills us with awe, then it's not to be bottled up. It's to be shared. And I take it that what we see here in God keeping his promise, God's incredible faithfulness is, is to fill us with an awe that you could translate as jaw-dropping, as gobsmacking. Um, and, and when something's absolutely stunning and amazing, you want to share that with others, don't you? Now, I, I saw a movie I thought was pretty stunning on Thursday night, I think it was. It's called One Life. Um, it's a beautiful movie. I mean, it's a horrific, the situation that it talks about, but it, it's a, a deeply moving story based on, on a historical account of a guy um, pre-Second World War and the impact in the lives of hundreds of people, and I'll try not to spoil the movie for you. Um, and I want to share that with you because I think it's, it's, a, it's a movie worth seeing. How much more is it worth sharing with you that God's kept every promise that he's made to save people and that includes your family, your neighbours, your friends, the people in your community, the people that you shop with, the people gathered all around us on holidays. It involves people here and people overseas in other countries. And that leads us to want to share that news. And if we don't feel like sharing that news, maybe we've just lost some of the awe about what God has done. So why don't we pray for one another that, that God will remind us of, of how wonderful this is, of how beautiful, of, of how extraordinary that, that he would stoop down and so carefully and particularly in the course of human history keep his promises and bring about salvation. The whole thing. Why don't we pray now that God will deepen our sense of awe, fill us with certainty, and help us to see clearly his faithfulness. Let's pray.
Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you don't make promises alone, you keep them. And whether they're promises made to a childless couple in their old age, or whether they're promises made to Father Abraham or King David or Moses the Redeemer, you keep every single one of those promises. And we thank you that we can read about them and we can read the evidence that you've kept your promises. And so we pray that you'll help us to understand that you really are an incredibly faithful God. And that because you've demonstrated your faithfulness in Jesus, we know that you'll be faithful to us. And so we pray that you'll move us to, to bow our knee to you, not to compete with you. Help us to depend upon you, not to rely on ourselves. Help us to seek forgiveness, not to think that we don't need it. And help us to rejoice in the Saviour and not try and save ourselves. And Father, we pray that uh, in so understanding your faithfulness that you will deepen our certainty of the truth of these things um, and that this year we will we'll grow in our confidence that you are who you say you are and that we can trust you not just with our lives but in our deaths. And we finally pray that you'll, you'll move our lips to praise, that it will flow out of our hearts and that we'll be so infused with the awe of what you've done that we'll just want to talk about it and that we'll want to pray about it and that our heart's desire will be to see others experience that same wonder. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.